Your soul is at war with lies. And you have no choice but to fight. Lies have shaped us, told us who we thought we were, held us captive. Lies from outside us, lies from within us. Truth is reality. And when we live at odds with reality, we cannot thrive. Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth can be known. The truth will set you free. It's time to take back control of our minds from their captivity to lies. To liberate them with the weapon of truth. It is time to fight back in the quietness of our hearts. To stand in the truth. To live no lies. Week number four in our series, Live No Lies. And uh, I said this at the very beginning, this uh, outline around this series is based on a book by John Mark Comer uh, of that title, Live No Lies. And I highly commend that book to you. Uh, Grab it, read it, because it goes way more in depth than we're able to do uh, over a handful of weeks here. So grab that book. But the big idea uh, around this series is that we're in a battle. We are in a spiritual battle between good and evil between truth and lies, and we feel that in our soul. And when we talk about lies and the way we've been talking about lies, our biggest problem with lies is not necessarily that we tell lies. Our biggest problem is that we believe lies. And because we believe lies, then we actually live lies. Earlier, a couple weeks ago, Brandon, just after we started this series, our worship leader, he sent me a text and said he saw this bumper sticker that said this. Don't believe everything you think. That's kind of what we're talking about in this series. And if you were around during the last three weeks, we've talked about how the evil one is one of our key enemies, and his primary strategy is lies. New toy, new toy. Got to get it figured out. Our enemy, the devil, his primary strategy is lies. If you remember a couple weeks ago when I was up here, I kept saying over and over, what we need to do is we need to think about what we think about. Don't believe everything that you think. I was so grateful that Brandon was willing to go. And after he texted me that he saw that bumper sticker, I said, I would love a picture. And so he raced around Bozeman and got the picture for me. I mean, there is that whole restraining order thing now, but he's going to get through it. But here's the deal. This is not our only enemy. There's more bad news. We're going to be talking about another enemy today which is what the Bible calls our flesh. And here's how we're gonna define the flesh. It's our disordered desires. Our disordered desires. What is the Bible talking about when it talks about our flesh? So here's the big idea. Not only do we have an enemy that's on the outside, the devil, but we actually have an enemy on the inside, 
what the Bible calls our flesh. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking over the next couple of weeks in Galatians chapter 5. It is a key text in the New Testament talking about this battle that we feel in our life with the flesh. And there's two biblical terms that we've got to understand if we're going to understand what Paul and what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the flesh and freedom. Those are the two terms that we need to understand. We need to understand what is meant by flesh and what is meant by freedom. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 5, first starting in verse 13. So if you have a Bible on your lap or in your app, we're going to be starting in verse 13. Paul says this, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. There's that idea of freedom. But he says, But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Before we get started, because this is such an important term for us to understand biblically, we've got to ask this question. What is the truth about our flesh? What is the truth about our flesh? And so what we need to do is we need to define biblical terms in biblical ways. So when we see Paul and other New Testament writers using this term flesh, when we see that in our Bible, we need to understand how is he defining that? Because the word flesh, just like lots of words in English, one word can have a range of meaning. Sometimes in the New Testament, when we use the word flesh, we're simply just talking about our body, like our flesh. But Paul's not talking about our body when he's talking about not indulging our body. He's talking about something else. And sometimes when the New Testament uses the term flesh, it's just talking about a broad term to describe people or humanity. But Paul's not saying that's not the problem. In fact, if you were here last week, one of the scriptures that Logan shared is our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. But Paul says there's something different that's happening inside of us. It's a very biblical, but a very theologically loaded term, and it's called the flesh. And here's how we would define it. The flesh is simply those base, primal desires in us that turns us towards self gratification. Anything in our heart and life that turns us toward our self. The pastor and scholar Eugene Peterson, the one who wrote out the message for us, translated the Bible into what we call the message, he defined flesh in this way. It is the corruption that sin has introduced into our very appetites and instincts. Appetites and instincts. We all have these. And I need to say this up front, and I'm going to say it more than once today. Our appetites and instincts are given to us by God. They are not evil in and of themselves. God has given them to us. Appetites like an appetite for food, an appetite for sex, an appetite for pleasure, a desire for safety, a desire for survival, a desire for control in different circumstances. These desires are not inherently bad or evil, but what happens is when we start to live our life independent of God in our fallenness and our brokenness, our desires become what we're calling disordered desires, disproportionate or out of order. So I want you to think about your desires, your flesh, because Paul is telling us This is true of everyone. There is nobody that doesn't fight this battle. We've got to fight this. 
And we see this. We don't, we don't have to learn to try to turn our life inward on ourselves. We naturally do that. One of the places where sometimes I'll go to work on a sermon is the lobby of a gym that I go to. And it's always kind of fun in there. There's like families coming in and kind of there's a table that I work at often. But back behind me down a hallway is this like play area that kids just love. And so I can be there at that table and you just see kids like running in ahead of their parents. and They're just so excited to get there. But there's also a trail of kids that are leaving that fun place. And it's just always interesting to watch what parents have to go through to try to pull their kids out of that fun place. As I was sitting here writing this part of my sermon, there was a mom that was coming out and she literally had a kid under her arm screaming. I could hear it all the way down the screaming. And she's just, boom, hits the door and she's out of there. I think there was a training environment coming out there in the car for that child. But here's what I want to say. is like she didn't have to teach that little kid to do that, to think about himself. Like I want what I want. My desires are my desires. He knew exactly how to do that. And so do you. And see, the thing about that little kid is he, he didn't know how to control it. He didn't know how to manage it. He didn't know how to hide it. We get a little bit better sometimes as we get older in terms of hiding those things. Because we all have that flesh. We all have those thoughts, those ideas, sometimes those behaviors that we even act out. And we just think, if anybody ever knew that this was even going through my mind, that this was a desire of my heart, I would be so embarrassed. It would be so full of shame. And so what we do is we try to figure out how do we hide that? Because we're thinking, where in the world did that come from? And Paul would say, it comes from your flesh. It comes from your disordered desires. But here's what Paul and Jesus want us to do. They don't want us to think about how to mask it. They don't want us to try to figure out how to put lipstick on a pig to make it look better than it really is. What Paul wants us to do is hold it out. Hold it out. Look at it. Bring it underneath the light and the grace and the compassion and the truth of Jesus and allow him to be able to think about how do we shape, how do we learn to order our desires? Because I'm gonna say it again, not all of your desires are inherently bad. Some of your desires are incredibly good, but not all of your desires are created equal. There are some desires that you need to express. And as you express those desires, it actually leads to life and to peace and to flourishing, not only in your life, but the lives of people around you and incredible freedom. But there are those desires in our sinful flesh that if we don't figure out how do we restrain this enemy, it'll actually take us to a place of slavery and fear. So that's what we have to do when we start to think about the flesh. What does it look like for us to begin to manage our flesh, put to death our flesh? How do we restrain some of our desires and cultivate some of the others? And over the next couple of weeks, this is what we're going to be talking about is this internal battle that you're feeling. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, what Paul's gonna talk about is you've got a battle that's happening between the spirit of God in your life and your flesh. They're in conflict with one another so that you do not do what you want. And you know who else understands your flesh? The enemy. He understands our brokenness. He may not be able to see everything that's happening in our heart and our life, but he understands people. He knows where the chinks in your armor are. He knows where he can get into your life. And he is so good at it. And it's through our flesh often that the enemy wants to bring lies. And so that's what we're gonna be thinking about over the next couple of weeks is how do we battle our flesh? How do we battle that natural instinct to turn our life inward? And here's what Paul has to say in terms of explaining this battle. Let's continue reading from where we left off. I'll read Galatians 13 again. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law, all the law of the Old Testament, is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. And here Paul goes into talking about that struggle, that battle, that invisible tug of war that you feel in your life. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. And here's the punchline. So that you are not to do whatever you want. So that you are not to do whatever you want. So that you are not to do whatever you want. I just imagine if the uh, Apostle Paul was here today, this statement probably wouldn't sell any better back in the Roman Empire as it does today. Our culture is diametrically opposed to this kind of thinking. This is counter to the values of our culture. It is counter to the narrative of our culture. This isn't how we live. In our world, we do what we want to do. Charles Taylor, in his seminal work, a book called A Secular Age, explaining what is happening as our culture becomes more and more secular in the West, he said, we have moved from an authority culture to an authenticity culture. And here's what he means by that. There was a time in the West when it was very, very normal for us to talk about authority in our life. The authority that would place our life under in terms of God. The authority that we'd place our life under in terms of the scriptures. Even the authority that we would place our life under in terms of the tradition of how we lived out our faith. We gave our life to authority and we were very willing to do that. He said that has gone. And now we live in what he calls an authenticity culture, which means that I decide what I do. We cast off authority in every way. We ourselves become central in everything. And you hear it in the slogans of our day. These are things that maybe you think, maybe you say, but the heart wants what it wants. Follow your heart. You do 
you. Speak your truth. Be true to yourself. If it feels good, do it. You've heard all of those things because this is the air we breathe in our culture. It is no longer an authority culture. It is an authenticity culture. And so Paul, back then and even now, is stepping into our day and saying, no, do not do whatever you want. Because here's the lie. You think that doing whatever you want, allowing your life to turn in on itself, to think about nothing but your own self-gratification is gonna bring you life. That that's what's gonna make your life meaningful. That is the lie of the enemy. Because he understands how those lies play in to our flesh and play in to our desires because deep down, we do want to do what we want to do. And this would work great. This would work great if every one of your desires led to your flourishing and the flourishing of people around you, but they just don't. Augustine, a fourth century philosopher and theologian, he's the one who kind of coined this idea of disordered desires or what he called loves. He would say, you are made to love. God created you to love. God is love and we are made in his image. We are made to love. We are made to desire. But he said the problem of the human condition is that our desires become disordered. And here's what he means. Not that we don't love, but that we love the wrong things or we love the right things in the wrong order. We either love the wrong things or we love the right things in the wrong order. Think about it like this. Is it good for you to love your job? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, work is part of what God created for us. Even before the fall, there was work. God wants us to, to work and to be productive. But if you love your job more than you love your family, that is disordered. If you're spending all your time, all of your energy, all of your heart around succeeding in your job and your career, your family will suffer. That is disordered. Or just say, do you love your family? Absolutely. I just said you need to love your family even more than you would love your job. But what if you love your family in such a way that all of your life is just about meeting the needs and desires of your family, whether it's entertainment, sports, all of your life revolves around your family, but there's no time or very little time that is spent taking your family and helping them place their life, place their heart underneath the authority of God, teaching them about who God is and what he's like. God wants you to love his family, but not more than you love God and his kingdom. If we're chasing things with our family more than we're chasing the things of God, our loves are disordered. And that's what Augustine is saying. It's not necessarily that our desires are bad, but sometimes we can even love the right things in the wrong order. In our culture, we just don't think sometimes that there, are, that there is such a thing as disordered desires. If I'm central, I decide what order matters most. 
And so in any thought of trying to discipline our desires in our culture, if there's any kind of authority that is trying to hamper or discipline your desires, they'll throw the yellow flag and say, that's oppression. You don't tell me what to do. Or even if they see us internally, people trying to discipline their desires, they throw the yellow flag and say, that's repression. You can't allow that. Oppression and repression. You've got to be you. That's what the culture keeps telling us. In fact, in our culture, sometimes I would say the ultimate sin is to not follow your heart. I hear it all the time. The messages from Madison Avenue, the messages that I hear people saying over and over again. But Paul is trying to tell us that if we do that, if we do that, if we make our life about ourselves internally, this is how it's gonna play out. Let's continue reading, starting in verse 19. It says, the acts of the flesh. The acts of these disordered desires are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, just, just think about that list. Think about our culture. Think about the things that war against our soul. Our culture is just reaping what happens when we live for our flesh, when we live for ourself, when there's nothing that is a higher calling in our life than our self-gratification. We're seeing this played out in our life and our culture, and you're feeling it in your own heart and life. Let's just get really, really honest with each other. Let's look at that list again. I just wanna show you that list again and just take a second to let your mind go over that list. And here's what I want you to do is, as you're looking at that list, maybe hold that list up to your life. And ask yourself, where do I see myself in that list? If there's something in you that says, I don't see myself in that list, we've got a problem. Paul says, we have a flesh. We have fruit of the flesh. We have disordered desires. Where are you on that? Here's another question that came to my mind as I was preparing this. When you look at that list, which of those things up there are worse? Are there things up there that are worse than other things? Because here's my hunch. When we read a list like that, it's really easy for us to look at and point at the things that aren't the things that we struggle with. But we see People in our culture, we see people in our life struggling with those things. And we tend to distance ourselves from that. I mean, there, there's words up there that maybe I don't even know what they mean and I don't even say those words in, in public. I, 
embarrassed that my pastor just read some of those words in church today. Here's what happens. We tend to look at other people's struggles with the flesh with the microscope. We just make it look like it's really big and really up close. But we look at our own sin, the own fruit of our flesh with a telescope. You know, it's really kind of out there. It's really kind of small. It's really kind of distant. But if we're gonna do the battle that Paul is asking us to do, we've got to get gut level honest. What are the things, what are those disordered desires that are rearing themselves in your heart, in your life? The devil knows what they are. He's gonna continue to lie about them. Let's not hide it anymore. Let's bring it out into the open. Like I said earlier, under the light of God's compassion and his grace, but under his truth and call it for what it is. Because if we're gonna be serious about changing the world around us to be a a church that makes a difference, you need to change your own heart. I need to change my own heart. We've gotta get honest about how we're living lies through our flesh, through our disordered desires. So over the next couple of weeks, we're not not gonna finger point. We're not gonna tweet about all the people that are struggling with the things that are out there that aren't what I struggle with. You need to open up your heart and open up your life. What are your disordered desires? And how do we start to think about, how do I manage these desires? How do I bring this under the authority of God in my life? How do I take this bent that I have toward turning my life inward toward self-gratification? And how do I learn to turn it outward toward God and toward others? And here's a big truth that I want you to walk away with today as you start to think about your desires. And the truth is this, our strongest desires are not actually our deepest desires. Let me say that again. Our strongest desires are not necessarily, are not actually our deepest desires. We have lots of desires that are competing in our life. So even if you were trying to live out of just your desires, what desires would you live out? Because they compete with one another. Let me give you an example. As I was kind of in my mid-40s heading toward 50, uh, I noticed myself looking in the mirror and I could see the early onset of what my friend calls furniture disease, where your chest starts to fall into your drawers. And I started to think about my life. I started to think about the desires that I have. One, to eat. I like to eat, and I like to eat a lot, and I don't always like to eat things that are good for me. That is a real desire. But there's also a desire that I have when I, when I think about what my life is gonna be like, Lord willing, as I get older, I wanna be able to enjoy the things that I enjoy now. I wanna be able to be outside and hike and camp and do the things that I've always done. That is a deep desire of mine. It competes with the desire that I have over here to eat and to not exercise. I find myself as I go to the gym, like right before I'm gonna take a class, usually I'm standing there, everything in me wants to just go to the steam room. 
I don't want to, I want to sweat in the steam room. I don't want to sweat based on exercise. But I've got to restrain that desire because I have a greater desire of what I want my life to be like in the future. We have desires that are competing and our strongest desires are not actually our deepest desires. Let me just get a little bit more blunt about it. When we are in the moment of temptation, when we're in that place where we've got this juicy, juicy piece of gossip about one of our coworkers and we want to communicate it, that is a strong desire. But do I wanna be that gossip? I have bitterness in my heart. I have this strong desire to wanna hold on to this bitterness. I don't want to forgive. But I also look at what unforgiveness does in the heart and the life of a person. And I don't want that to be someone that I become one day. Maybe it's that outfit, that piece of gear that you do not need to buy. But it's tempting in the moment. But what you really want to be is you want to be a generous person. Would I say no to this desire so that I could be generous to others? It could be a hundred things. I want to overeat. I want to overdrink. I want to click on that thing on the computer to take my eyes and my mind to a place that I don't want to go. In the moment, in the moment, as our flesh rears its ugly head, those temptations and those desires are overwhelming. Sometimes even they just feel like they're irresistible. But those strongest desires are not our deepest desires. There's something else that we want for ourselves. What do you really want? It's so interesting as, you know, I just feel like the Lord is gracious. I'm just wrestling with this stuff over the last couple weeks. And uh, just yesterday, I was in the steam room and I ran into a guy that I hadn't seen forever. It was a steam room after I had exercised. So I wasn't just in the steam room, but I hadn't seen him in a handful of years. And I knew that one of the last times I talked with him, he was headed toward a divorce and he was hurt and he was heartbroken. And so I just asked him, I just said, are you doing okay? How, how, did, how did you come out of that? And he said, it was, it was gut-wrenching. He said, it was awful uh, to lose her and to lose my life. And he said, but there was something that came out of it for me that I'm really grateful for. And I'm, I was just like, well, tell me. And he said, I realized that there were things that I really wanted in life. But as I looked at what I really wanted in life and how I was actually living my life, he said they were opposed to one another. And he said, I realized I just got to learn to live my life in light of what I really want to be true of me. And I just was sitting there thinking, you're preaching my sermon for me. That's exactly true. The deep things that he wanted in life didn't match up the strong desires that he was chasing as he started to align those things. And he's not even a follower of Jesus, but it's just aligning our life to who we want to be. Our deepest desires is one of the most important things that we can do. Here's how I want you to think about it. When you think about what are my deepest desires, I want you to, to think about a memorial. Think about a funeral. What do people say about people at a memorial? We honor the deep 
things about people. We honor their deepest desires. People talk about how they loved people, how they were incredibly loyal to their family and to their friends. They talk about the kinds of things about how they were willing to sacrifice their life for the sake of others. They talk about joy. They talk about compassion. What do you really want? Because I've been at those memorials where they talked about he really knew how to party and look how he took care of his cars. And I just think, don't let that be me. What do you really want? Every time I've been saying that this week, I just got to confess, I think of the Spice Girls. Tell me what you want, what you really, really want. But that's what you need to do. You've got to ask yourself, what is it that I really, really want? Because your strongest desires, those things of your flesh, are not actually your deepest desires. And secondly, we want to talk about that other term that Paul uses that we've got to understand biblically, and that's the term freedom. What is the truth about our freedom? Let me read Paul's thesis statement again, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge your flesh. Jesus also, all about freedom. He came to set the captives free. This was our scripture, part of our scripture from the first week, John chapter eight. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then, meaning this will be the result, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus, Paul, they are all about freedom. But how, friends, do we define freedom? In our culture, Kind of the basic definition is freedom just simply means I am free to do whatever I want without restraint. I think this definition is captured by the great philosopher Elsa in Frozen. She said this, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. The tech team made me promise I would not sing that. So I did not, because you don't want that stuck in your head. But that's our cultural perspective, isn't it? No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Turned inward. Our freedom turned inward. But Paul has something very, very different in mind when he talks about freedom. His kind of freedom, the kind of freedom Jesus was talking about that will set you free that will set you free from slavery is a freedom that turns your life outward, outward toward God and toward others. Here's how Paul said it. I'm gonna read that chunk of scripture again. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed. 
Isn't that interesting how Paul describes freedom? It's not about turning in on yourself. It's about turning outward toward others. Meaning, what does it look like for us to love and care for others? How are we willing to sacrifice for the sake of others? In Andy Stanley's book uh, on questions that we ask, fewer, ask better, okay, here's the name, here's the title, Better Questions, Fewer Regrets. One of the questions he said that you need to ask, and I've shared this in other contexts in preaching, what does love require of me? If you're gonna receive freedom from your flesh, you've gotta ask yourself, what does love require require of me? Because Paul makes it clear that it's mutually exclusive. To indulge your flesh means that you do not love other people. Saying no to your flesh means that I've got the permission and the power and the desire to lay down my life for the sake of others. I'm willing to limit my freedom for the sake of others. And that's really at the core of any love relationship, isn't it? I mean, if at the core of our relationship, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. If that's what we do in love relationships, it doesn't work. Love relationships, whether it is a marriage or a friendship, is about mutual sacrifice for the sake of another. A willingness to say, I give my time for you. I'm willing to serve you. I'm willing to encourage you, to help you become all that God has created you to be. I'm willing to give my energy for you. I'm willing to say no to my freedom in order to bring freedom and life to you. That is the picture of what Paul is talking about. And next week, we're gonna talk more fully about what does that look like to live in the power of the Holy Spirit? Because he's the one who empowers us to be able to do the things that we're talking about today. It is mutual laying down of our freedom. If there's only one, if there's only one person in a relationship that is laying down their freedom and the other one is not, it is not a love relationship. It is exploitation and it's manipulation. And some of you know exactly what that's like to be in friendships and relationships and even marriages that are like that. It's not what God intends because God's intent for our relationships and even our relationship with him is that there's a mutual laying aside of our freedom. To go all in with Jesus that we talk about here all the time, to make him the king of your life, is that gonna mean you're gonna lay down your freedom? Yes. Does that mean that you're gonna find freedom? Yes. Both of those things are true at the same time. You're asking yourself maybe the question, well, how is it that God lays down his freedom for me? I mean, he's got all the power. He holds all the cards. How did God ever lay down his freedom for me? Friends, this is the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of why we lay down our life for Jesus because he first laid down his life for us. He laid down his freedom. I want to read this last scripture from Philippians chapter two. The scripture says this. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, meaning think 
like he thinks. Align your thinking to his thinking. How does he think? It says, who being in very nature, God, he was God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus laid down his freedom for us so that we would know how to lay down our freedom for him. And friends, how to lay down our freedom for each other. If you choose to follow Jesus and make him the king of your life, Will you lose freedom? Yes. Will you gain freedom? Yes. You will never, never be more free than surrendering your life to him. You will know the truth and that truth will set you free. Okay, here's your assignment. There's some questions that I want you to Take some time, set aside some time this week. I hope everybody does this. I believe it's that important. And in the words of the Spice Girls, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. What are your deepest desires? Think about your memorial. Think about what people will say about you. What are your deepest desires as it relates to God, as it relates to his kingdom, as it relates to your family? What really are your deepest desires? What really matters to you? But then ask the gut level honest question, what are those desires that keep you from your deepest desires? What are the ways that my flesh, those strong desires are actually keeping me from fully living out the deepest desires that I want to live out in my life? And ask yourself, what desires are disordered? Are my desires in the right order? Take some time. Do this. In any way, am I loving the wrong things or am I loving the right things in the wrong order? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you were willing to not just tell us how to surrender our freedom to you, but you showed us what it looked like for you to surrender your freedom for our sake, out of love for us. And Jesus, we just come before you and we say thank you. And we just say in light of who you are and what you've done for us, there's nothing else that we would want to do other than make you the king of our life. You matter most. You are our deepest, deepest desire. Jesus, would you, by the spirit of truth, your spirit that lives within us, would you reveal to us those desires in our life that are disordered? 
where we're loving things that we shouldn't love or we're loving things that we should love in the wrong order. We want to order our life by you and for you and for your name's sake. And it's in your name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for engaging with this content. If it was encouraging to you, we'd love for you to leave a review. Hit that subscribe button and share this content with others. We'd also love to connect with you. The best place to do that is journeyweb.net. Don't forget to follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search Journey Church Bozeman and you'll find us there. If you'd like to give to our ministry, you can do that now at journeyweb.net slash give. Once again, thanks for engaging with Journey Church.